Hey there, everybody. Welcome. This is Tavo Diarcy, overseer of the DFW Leader Ministry Online Fellowship. I'm calling your attention today because I'm not going to record anything here, but I put up a link right on this podcast for you could look over on Was Jesus Christ the Messiah a Misogynist? And you can read in that. I've been dealing with a lot of, hate to say it, a lot of um, good old boyism in the ministry, and I wasn't raised around that. I really respect men. And I'm for all kinds of men, Christian and not, ministers and not. But I've never had bias or deceit or and or whatever this is, chauvinism, misogynist, control like racism. And it really does glare at me. That's why I'm addressing it doctrinally and respectfully. You know, my dad, he was a great Christian pastor, not famous, not wealthy, but just a gentle, down-to-home, smart, kind person, very respectful never had any bias, never misogyny, so I wasn't you know, aware of it till I went down really to the deep south, deep, deep south into the showbiz, I guess, arena of Christ following in Christian ministry. So this has been about 15 to 20 years in study of analyzing what in the world is this thing going on? And it, to me, it is targeting, it's a demonic spirit. It's accusing just for showing up wearing your earth suit that God made you in. And it could be toward men or women, but it could be toward black as well. And I believe the same spirit that targets, like misogyny toward women, the evil eye, is the same kind of, you know, fault finding old dark spirit from the devil himself, that mean devil that targets races, people that don't, you know, that look unusual, that have different vibes. And that's what I guess... God needed me to find out to address it in ministry. God bless you. He loves you. Bye-bye. Hey there and welcome everybody. This is Tava Diarcy. We're here at the DFW Leader Ministry Fellowship, even though we're really located on the North Carolina-South Carolina border. It's so much better being up here instead of around a lot of big boss religion in ministry. So we're godly content. And we want to talk about a thing. You know, I was thinking... That when I was raised, I didn't realize that my parents, who were godly people and fun, contented, and great parents, mom and dad, and their family, they all were raising me around a good witness of family in marriage that was a partnership, a team. And I never thought that anybody else didn't get raised that way. I knew people had, you know, no parents and things like that. That's not their fault, but... I didn't have a big boss type of situation with my father to my mother. There was no little woman. There was no politics. It was just really Christian following the Lord and servant leadership. I'm thinking today of the scripture. It's Ephesians 5.21 has to go with the training of Ephesians 5.22 in Christian marriage counseling and Christian wedded legally wed, that type of thing for mothers and fathers. When I look back, I think I had a, a merry time. That means they were working hard, servant leaders, but joyful and cracking jokes or finding things that were humorous and fun in life. And we played. We didn't just get, you know, all religion. It wasn't religious. It was like, yes, they served the Lord. He was a pastor, teacher, Mom was pastor's wife. They didn't have ministries in the Southern Baptists that were women ministries in her day, but she was a Bible scholar, and so were my family and grandmother her side. 
But nobody made a big deal about it. I think one reason I met the Lord on my own, I wanted the Lord. I didn't like church, you know, church, you have to get dressed up, all those types of things. But it wasn't because of the Lord. It was because of great parenting. I wanted the Lord. And when I went on to college later, I met the Lord on my own at a, like a Jesus people type day. And when I went to college, I was on this, it used to be a Baptist university. It's now not. But there are a whole bunch of preacher's kids on the floor with me as the freshman year. And I never saw so many people coming home drunk every weekend, dating all the time. <laughs> One girl had kissed 469 men, she said, by the time she was 18 and a freshman. But my parents had raised me not under the law. I think a lot of people that get into trouble like that, you know, are looking, they're stressed up by being pent up with too much control or sin consciousness. You can't do this. You can't do that. And my parents knew how to do it well and right. So I didn't want to do it. Also, I had a holy fear of the Lord. I knew they're all praying people and kind people, but I knew that, man, there's a hell to avoid and a heaven to gain, and with a Billy Graham type of thought, it really kept me soberly, sober in my fun, and I still have a pleasant thought of that, but I'd like to say today the result of this is to try to think, how can we educate people in the Christian community and ministry to not be back under the old Levitical patriarch law? That is something I never knew existed till I got out and when I was age 24 in 1976, the Lord had called me expressly one day sitting in a sermon in a Presbyterian church in Virginia, Richmond, Virginia, that was half Presbyterian and half charismatic renewal. Now, back then, that was way before television, celebrity, Christian or big media or anything like that. So it was a Billy Graham type of calmness in a quality educated church that was high functioning. And I remember the pastor God used, you know, he sent us there for that time. I was married, but no children. And I could really hear the word of the Lord. It was very fear of the Lord and, and sober in a nice way, but not strict. It was quality. And I want people that are meaty. If I go to a ministry or a conference or somewhere, I want to go where I hear something that is truly the Lord, not just speculation or fluff. So back then, one Sunday in 1976, I heard the Lord say in my spirit, I want you to go and study the body of Christ in leadership around the nation. It will be for the purpose of in the last days for you to build understanding, bridges of understanding between the different kinds. And the Lord put on my heart, it's going to be all races. It's going to be speaking in tongues and not. It's going to be males and females. Know their doctrine. Know their pet peeves. Know their biases. Know their good qualities. Know their music, their style. And like I said, I didn't know charismatic or prophetic or speaking in tongues because I wasn't raised around it. They weren't against it. Nobody would ever, you know, I'd never met one growing up as a child and they weren't that strict, but there just weren't any around. I remember hearing in the little town where we lived at one point, where my dad had the church, the church field out to the country, in the country, I'd heard of holy rollers, you know, holy rollers were there. And so that caught my imagination, because I do have a big imagination, you know, fun, the thought of it. 
And then later, decades later, when I grew up and did meet the Holy Spirit and did meet that, you know, book of Acts in a calm way, then I happened to meet the group that they were some real Pentecostals. They were holy rollers and they had a sense of humor. They had a rollerblading team they used to call the holy rollers. I think that's a hoot. But let's get back to the topic. I want to talk on, I teach on relationships, home, ministry, before the Lord, with the Lord, the Almighty God. And part of having a functional society, part of having a functional functional Christian community, part of having a functional fellowship and a good neighbor feel, and part of having a contented, ongoing, enduring, loving family and spouse couple with family is basically training on self-control, discipline, and respect. And that's what I do. So Ephesians 5.21, it looks to me as most Christians, I don't know how the black ones are doing, I do know black people, you know, a lot of black people, but it looks like the majority of the non-African Americans are Levitical patriarchs that teach marriage that it's sort of a biased feel. When I was sent to study the body of Christ, I was very open. I was very concerned that I would be, you know, I had people praying for me that I would not get into error. And when I met the Holy Spirit, I, you know, I got the call in 1976 when I was 24. But in 19, uh, four years before in college, I had gone off campus because that's when the Holy Spirit was starting to move Jesus people style. And I heard of a local prayer and praise group that was just starting. You know, none of the mega worship, entertainment, all the things we have now. So it was just blue jeans and guitars, acoustic. And that was such a great style, you know, comforting. And But I didn't want to be an heir. So I went to the, I was the evangelical university at the time, you know, on the campus. And... I heard of like a miracle, you know, someone said, oh, you know, this happened, that happened. I went, all right, I'm going to go see. But I didn't want to get into error, you know, back then. So we went to the praise and worship I did. And I thought, yeah, I liked it. It was nice. Nothing wrong with it. And it was at a Presbyterian church, one of the very few that allowed the Holy Spirit to move. And it was a youth-type gathering, you know, college age and so forth. Very peaceful, very good. And after the service, the leader came out, who is my age, and he said, Tavo, do you want the baptism of the Holy Spirit? I thought, well, I want to make sure it's God. You know, I don't know. Is it thy will, O Lord? That's a good Baptist prayer. If it be thy will, because I, you know, you know the baptism of the Holy Spirit means speaking in tongues. Nobody ever told me not to. Nobody ever said to. You know, I didn't get teaching, but I knew of it. And I was curious. You know, one thing I have been is real quiet, tame looking, and reserved, maybe timid at times. But I've never been shy about the Holy Spirit. I've never been, I've always been adventurous in my soul, my heart. With people, it's when with humans, it's one kind of thing I might get, you know, timid or something reserved but with the Lord I'm always listening and I can trust him 
I believe that a good parent helps like a good father, if you have a father, a good authority, helps you to understand the quality of the Father God. If you have one that is even keel like I did, who is respectful like I had, who is not reviling you, cursing you, word cursing you, shaming you, making you feel bad like dirt, doesn't keep you under control, beating his Bible down, you know, in a prison, which I did not. And I want to put in a plus for dads and authorities, males and females, who raise children in the admonition of the Lord, but not with a critical Levitical finger-pointing, beaten-down posture, you know, legalism, watching, but loving and fun. And I think of the Heavenly Father when he corrected Adam. You know, Adam and God had a special relationship before Eve came along. So he was the firstborn of the planet. He was the head of the planet, the governor. And God made him first and gave him the charge, do not eat of that one tree only, the tree of good and evil, before Eve came along. So when Eve came along, she finally knew about it. And so when they went to the garden, we have a big change about to happen, a big challenge. In Genesis 1, 1 and 2, we have the picture of a happy organic planet no fault finding, no sin, no hardships, no heartache. We have the original relationship between the man, firstborn, you know, man, Adam, and father. That means a man needs a separate relationship, the Christian man today, not relying on his wife or anybody else, but with the Lord. It's a special value of a time apart to hear God for himself. So then Adam is there, and God sees he's alone, Genesis 1 and 2. And he says, it's not good for my man to be alone. I'm going to make him a friend. I'm going to make him a, a, a wife. So he gets Adam's rib, the DNA of Adam. So if you, they didn't talk about DNA in the Bible, but now we do. The DNA means that Eve is equal with Adam, just in a chain of command form for order in chain of command. So that's why we teach Ephesians 5.21, mutual submission in the fear of the Lord. With submission, the second one, verse 22, easier. Really pretty simple. Because if both, Ephesians 5.21, both are mutually submission, mutually respectful, each deferring and honoring and wanting the best for the other, unselfish, and they have a holy fear of the Lord together. That means a reverential respect for God where they're going to walk softly before the Lord and with each other in enduring for compassion and forgiveness. Man, that makes a team. That makes a partnership, not a slave and a slave owner. That makes nobody in control, but they want to hear God. And if there is a decision that's a, you know, they can't come to a real decision, then that's why the man, the Christian man needs a relationship apart with God to go away and pray and then he comes back and he can be the tiebreaker for the situation the head of home and that way he is not a slave owner or the big boss controller but he's just in you know they predetermine it you don't want to marry anybody you can't do that with you know you pick who you're gonna settle for you don't settle for anybody and same with goes the man as well 
But with that being known in a quantity, that's how it will work. That's what your choices are or not. You know, you make the choice. So the man goes off. If there's a moot point, they can't figure it out, you know. So the man goes off, makes the decision. And then the woman says, all right, I'll do it. The Lord tells you, trusting her man and his authority to hear God and respecting him. And therefore he comes back and she submits to it. That's what submission is to me. So I look at my life, I look at my heart, and I think, you know, I've never had an issue with men. I've always respected men and Christian men, always all colors. It doesn't matter. I think men are humans. That's why I see people as humans, not as an it, not as a misogynist, only a woman, or as a racist, or a black person. You know, I see them as a human first. Then you see the color and the gender, you know, all that. But I don't see, I, I was not raised around the law. The law, the Levitical patriarchism of the Torah is what causes people to accuse in New Testament times. That is where you get a lot of concern and the need for teaching to, for the Christians of how not to be overbearing, how not to be legalistic, word cursing people, accusing people, oh little you didn't, you know, better obey that type of voice of the Pharisee. I wasn't raised around it, and I can tell the difference. That's why I'm trying to liberate people, raise their their IQ in the Lord, raise their perspective, their quality of relationships for the family's sake, for the female's sake, for the male's sake, and for God's sake to be a good reflection of his nature, of contentedness, of community, of respect, and of fun. So if I were to say today for ministry to really work on relationships, to work on females and males order in the home, you want to have the end time harvest. Let's say you want to have everyone get ready for eternity. Well, you're going to keep people away. If they come, they've never been around a Christian before. They've only heard maybe bad stuff, which is, you know, people do that. And they come and they are used to being not bossed around or being diminished with misogyny. That means anti-woman, hatred, suspicious, evil eye, you know, women are less, chattel. And that is what I never knew existed until I went out to, the, I get to say it to the Levitical Patriarch movement. I didn't know what it was at first. I'd never been around it, but I realized I have its deliverance ministry because I stir up a typecast. I'm a type to it. I, if there's a spirit, a demonic spirit of Levitical patriarchism shepherding in the, which I teach on now to deliver it. And I walk in not knowing, not looking for it, but I just want to hear God. It's usually in charismatic where they have really great worship. And that's how I discovered it the hard way. Just going to be filled, you know, touched by the Lord and then you find out you're accused for sitting there by false religion. So let's get back on our story. I have a couple of threads. One, when I was teaching of Adam and Eve, we have Adam and Eve, chain of command. No big I, no little use. We have Eve as the governor's wife of the planet. And there was mutual respect and mutual submission, no fighting, no arguing, no, you know, cursing or tiredness. And God was pleased. When Genesis 3 comes, there is a choice. And as I said, Adam was formed first. He had a relationship with God first that said, do not eat of that tree. So he knew firsthand with no Eve rustling in the bushes 
to distract him, he knew what God said. So in Genesis 3, Eve is out there alone, and the devil comes. Now, if you want to know where the devil came from as the serpent, you can look at Revelation 12, 7 through 11, the story of that. When he turned, he was the mutiny up in heaven, the beautiful worship leader, Lucifer, and he got envious rivalry, pride, arrogance, and mean and started a mutiny against God with the angels. Well, God was bigger. He is the big boss, and he cast him down to the earth in Genesis 3. And who is there? The cursed serpent who's now going to try to wreck God's plan for retaliation because he got kicked out. He couldn't get his way. So he's the serpent, the accuser, the devil himself, the adversary, the liar, all these things, Revelations 12, 7 through 11. But he also comes down in first form as the deceiver, snake, and the accuser. That is a huge point. Accusation has wrecked marriages, homes, finances, killed people, made people kill themselves. It's create, it's wrecked homes and offices it's wrecked society it's wrecked schools bullying it's wrecked people after people and started wars so accusation and deception are demonic jesus is not demonic well i'm telling this story to get to a point about males and females and the lord and the father all right here we have the serpent in the garden and Eve is out there and he comes and gets her and he starts to work his his witchcraft so to speak he accuses God to Eve he says Eve God didn't want you to be like him that's why you shouldn't eat that tree you go ahead and eat it she falls for it and she eats the fruit now that's one thing that's a sin however then she goes over to Adam the firstborn man who was told by God before she was formed, don't eat that tree. That was his responsibility. That was his watch, you know, head of home, to guard and govern the family and the planet. So Eve goes over, and later the Bible teaches that Adam's sin was that he wanted to please his wife more than he wanted to please God the Lord. God the Lord had made him first. That was I mean, if you were friends with God, wouldn't that be a special thing? Anyway, he's blinded or he's in love or he just rationalizes. Maybe he doesn't want to hurt her feelings. She looks too pretty in the sunlight. Whenever he does, he eats the fruit. So Adam didn't get deceived, but he willfully participated. And when Adam willfully participates, he takes it out of her hand. He didn't have to. He puts it in his mouth. He didn't have to. He chews it and swallows it. He didn't have to, but he does. Well, then God knows and God shows up and he says, listen to this. He says, chain of command form to Adam, not Eve. Adam, where are you? Now, I say that for many points. One is that God held the man responsible because he was head of home. He honored his firstborn, his first relationship with the man out of respect and how he did it when he confronted Adam he held him accountable he didn't slip around God didn't he was right up front and he said Adam where are you and it is my opinion God modeled a hero father a Christian father 
a Jewish father. He modeled a hero father. He said, Adam, where are you? He didn't scream at Adam. He didn't berate Adam. He didn't holler at him and put him down and shame Adam and criticize him or accuse him. God is not the accuser. The father God is not the accuser. That is the point. He upfront confronted him. He held and he waited like a good dad. When God says, this is my opinion now, when God says, Adam, where are you? That was open-ended. He wanted to see, perhaps, if Adam would rise up and fess up and say, well, here's what happened, God. It happened on my watch. Eve was deceived, but I willfully chose. Will you forgive us both? And surely God would have. So then we think of, wow, that is amazing. Well, then Adam doesn't do it. God did a great role model. So many people, the reason I'm saying it, a lot of people, because of Phariseeism, the law, teaching that's wrong and immaturity, they think of father when men especially, especially Christian men who think, who is God the father? A lot of people, the random Christian, especially men will say, well, he's going to, you know, I better go to church or he'll smite me down. I better do this. If I'm not a good person, I'll go to hell. They have a guilty conscience. Oh, I fell, you know, I've slipped into sin. I better, I can't go to church now. I can't go to God because I committed adultery. I committed fornication or whatever, drugs. So all these things would clear up God's name and make God approachable and forgiving if we can paint a portrait like Adam had, but Adam didn't do it. So God shows up and he does his part. Adam, where are you? He's not, the, you know, screaming at him. He's saying, I'm seeing what happens like a great parent if I let Adam choose. Will he confess or will he hide? And Adam chose the wrong thing. He chose to hide and avoid God. And guess what? When he did that, he started to turn mean. He started to turn and resemble the character of the devil himself, the accuser. And he said the first person he accused was his wife. He said, well, God, that, de you know, that woman you gave me, he blames God, accuses God for making the Eve for, e for him. And he says, but uh, that woman you gave me, she gave it to me to eat. It's her fault. And it's been downhill ever since. So God as a great parent is a great teaching in that where accusation comes from and what it does hurts relationships it comes out of our lips and our choices. That's another. Also, males and females prior to the law, Ephesians, I mean, uh, Genesis 1 and 2. When the curses are pronounced by God in the after the fall, you know. Well, Jesus comes later. I mean, first of all, the curses are pronounced. You're going to have to work, men. You're going to have, you know, people, you're going to have to work by the sweat of your brow and Women are going to have pain in childbirth and all this stuff. And the women, you know, will be under the man. And surely those curses are there in the natural. However, if there's good teaching, we can realize that when Jesus came, he bought, he fulfilled the law, took all the curses upon him and redeemed our life from destruction so that we can now claim we will not have to work by the sweat of our brow. We will not have to be dominated by the male or female, and we will not have to be in pain in childbirth. 
if you are that kind of Christian that really wants to go that far in truth, you don't have to. But there is such a way that is more than meets the eye if you really have a big heart and fearlessness to try to explore the deep things of God. You know, it's a point for some that will want it, some will not. Not a legalism, not a law. So I like to go back and trace the male-female lineage because if you look at the Torah law, there was no need for Torah law when Adam and Eve were first formed. It was after they made their choices and their hearts got darkened with the power of sin. The death, you know, came in, accusation. And then the next chapter after Genesis 3 was that their two children murdered, you know, and it got worse, wars and accusation. So I was looking and made a list of the 10 relationships that that the devil wants to make, you know, turn into curses or makes us accuse. And if you look at the, the accuser in Genesis 4, we have Adam and Eve's first two sons, Cain and Abel. Well, Cain had self-talk that accused his brother. He had inner self-talk of self-pity, rejection, accusation toward his brother, because God liked Abel, his brother's, offering better. Cain had done it through works, and Abel had done it through faith, basically. And Adam's first two sons had inherited the nature of sin, the iniquity that was in all life due to sin, and Jesus brought it back. Too many things to go into that are deep, but it's amazing to think about all the good teaching we can all do out of this just for a few adjustments in our theology or a few knowledge, you know, a bit of knowledge. So I'm grateful for the good people in my life, the great parenting I had. My daddy made it easy for me to picture Christ, to picture Jesus walking around, to picture the Father because he never screamed at me. He was never the devil to me. He was God's witness before and on the stage and off the stage in life because he was a patient, strong, wise, and faith-filled man who loved his wife as Christ loved the church. Not saintly, not holier than thou, not perfect, but he gave me a model of a standard. He was not abusive, accusative. He was not a Pharisee. He was not a racist. He was a lot of things. And my daddy was not famous or widely known or even a great teacher. He was not, well, he was not, he was in the, you know, basic grassroots, unsung like many people. And when he died, and I remember he was a one woman man. That is a gift right there. And I come from that in family. Both of, all of them basically were all one woman, man, one male woman, blah, 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 whatever it is, back and forth. <laughs> they just wanted one person, which I tra- I think that's a great thing. So God is good. His mercy endures and nobody's perfect, but nobody's going to go to hell just for missing church. They're going to go to hell if they don't meet, the, you know, follow the Jesus Christ. But I'm not going to be the one that uses that kind of language because we've heard too much of that Pharisee stuff. God is good. His mercy endures. I'm going to close for now. This is Tavo D'Arcy. We'll keep on teaching because I want to get ready. Really, we're trying to wake up the sleeping Levitical patriarch matriarch groups 
because a lot of these people are really they're fine quality people that have gotten a bit ornery and maybe think they're they are the only ones God wants on the hills of the holy, the wells of the Holy Spirit and moving in the gifts and so we want to make sure that we are not moved by them we respect them but we're not we're out of that shepherding movement I didn't know what it was till the Lord had me study the body and now I know why can we can deliver a lot of people it has a lot to do with overseer it has a lot to do with control and small thinking where I don't think anyone has ever really met a female who didn't think that I don't think they've ever met a person who's not an LP in their ministry I think that's really what it is so I'm out here in Crossbody Unity, Book of Ephesians 4 Community, which is our style. And we will teach on the father of the tribe of Levi, who himself was raised in a very, he was the Levi, who was the, in his youth, a murderer. He had been raised as the son, the middle son of Leah, the doe-eyed, disfavored wife of Jacob, Israel. And he was caught in a trap of dysfunction in his father's house his he knew his mom wasn't respected so he resented women he knew that leah was not favored like rachel was the other wife and then here he was the middle child of six a middle child issues you know people have that and then he also had two women the two wives rachel and leah were fighting all the time and rivalrous to see who could have the more children they even went so far as to get the maids to have a children to win. <laughs> so all that made him suppressed with anger. And later he had a huge rage issue. He usurped his own father's authority to murder Dinah's rapist, whom the fathers, the patriarchs, had settled when Haman tried to rape her. He did rape her. Haman loved her and wanted to marry her. And so to avoid bloodshed, the father of Levi and Simeon, the boys, said all right you can marry her and that will avoid the slaughter of the men well old levi goes behind the father's back with simeon they have you know back then when they were teenagers were were murderous it says in the bible murderous and they tricked the men of the tribe of haman and said you know what we're not letting you marry my sister we're not letting your brother marry my sister diana because he raped her unless you get circumcised so the men you know out of authority submitting and betraying his own father to get even retaliation then levi tricks them and the men get of the tribe get circumcised well on the third day when they're circumcised simeon and levi go over there and slaughter the men murder so we have the trait of Le levitical patriarchism is misogyny anger retaliation big boss usurping retaliation as i say yes and a lot of things that is unwholesome and anti-woman and so later on we'll talk more I have a huge college apostolic teammate and we'll go into that later god bless you he loves you if you feel like you want to pray for me and this we're trying to get this out there more in the land to help more people to get it in order so lift that up and if you'd like to donate you can donate on the line and to dfwleader at gmail.com paypal god bless you he loves you bye-bye